I hope everybody in this building has found that hiding place. I hope you found that refuge, that place of security, place of peace. So many benefits to finding the location of God, finding where God is working, finding where God is present, not just in a geographical sense, in a building or a location in terms of a home or a church, but finding where God is present in a spiritual sense. What does it take to be in relationship with the Lord? What does it take to find that hiding place, place of rest? It was on my mind right before I walked in here today. I couldn't get off my mind the idea of our spiritual rest. And I came in here and just sat here, as I so often am, just amazed at how the songs were on that very subject, though nobody knew that was what the Lord had been putting on my mind. I'm not going to go through it in any depth, but you should study the subject of rest in the Bible. I'm not talking about taking a nap either. You should study the subject of rest. What does it mean to rest? I mean spiritually rest, because we know what it means to naturally rest, don't we? Sometimes you get to a place where your body is just so tired, you have to lay down. You need to rest. Part of our need for rest is so we can recharge, isn't it? So you can get your energy back, get your strength back. If you go without rest for a long period of time, it'll cause you all kinds of problems. You'll get disoriented, you'll get cranky, you'll get weak, your energy levels will drop. And I said you get disoriented, you can get disoriented to the point that you'll start having thoughts and ideas that aren't even true, they're not even accurate. You might have delusions come upon you because you're mentally disoriented because you haven't had enough sleep. There's a lot of people, by the way, that are in that exact state spiritually. They haven't had enough spiritual rest and because of that, they're spiritually disoriented. Israel was like that in the wilderness. They're the example that Paul was referring to when he talked about that subject in Hebrews 3 and 4. That's where you you were going to study rest. I'm not planning on talking on it today, but I don't know what the Lord's plan is. Maybe he does want to talk on it. We see in the book of Hebrews, 3rd and 4th chapter, talking about entering into your rest. It references all the way back to what Israel had been going through in the wilderness and how they didn't enter into their rest, but we better enter into our rest. If you're going to read the whole context of that, the last part of the third chapter and the first part of the fourth chapter, it's a pretty broad subject. It's not as simple as you think. It isn't just having peace because you're confident in Jesus. You better be. You better find your rest in Christ. When I say rest in that sense, I mean you better have the kind of confidence in Jesus that you're not in a state of anxiety. You know that scripture that Peter quoted in 1 Peter 2 when he was talking about Christ being the foundation stone, that stone that was laid that the builders rejected. If you go back to one of the references he was referring to in Isaiah, it says that believing in him that you might not have anxiety is what the Hebrew word means. You know, if you believe in Jesus, it should cause your anxieties to lift. That's part of the problem, as I said, that seems to be what Paul's referring to in Hebrews when he's referring back to the children of Israel in the wilderness because they weren't having confidence in their God. They could have rested if they had had confidence in their God, but that's only the beginning of your rest. That's how you enter into your rest. It seemed like these songs just kept referencing back to that, didn't they? Finding our security, finding our peace, finding our place of refuge in Christ and in the Lord. If you want to find your refuge in the right things, because if you don't find your refuge in something that is immovable, you're going to eventually have to find somewhere else to rest. You need to find the right place to rest in. We want to rest in Jesus, don't we? 
The beginning of our rest, entering into it, is by having confidence in Him, having faith in Him, believing in Him. You've got to believe in Him. I said that that was the problem the Israelites had in the wilderness, is that in spite of the incredible series of events that occurred that surely would cause you to believe in the God that was carrying them out, they did not believe in Him. You say, well, yes, they did. They believed in him. They knew he was there. They knew that he had delivered them from Egypt. You're right. But that's not the kind of belief he was looking for. They didn't have the kind of confidence in him that they could just commit themselves fully to his keeping without concern about the direction he wanted for their lives. He had some things he wanted them to do, but every time he got ready to take another step, they bucked against that because that can't be right, or this isn't the way, or surely you're going to provide for us in a different way than the way you're providing for us. They just didn't have confidence in his keeping, did they? Because of that, they never really entered into their rest. We need to enter into our rest. That begins by you having the kind of faith in the Lord you ought to have. You're never going to be able to rest spiritually unless you come to a place where you are confident in the Lord, where you're confident nothing's going to happen to you. It's very hard to rest if you're afraid something's about to happen. It's like resting in a war zone. Imagine what it is like to have to rest in a place where mortar shells might be falling or where the enemy might be attacking you at any time. I've been in a few environments in my life where I could not sleep, I could not rest. I was exhausted, but I couldn't rest. I couldn't rest because I knew at any moment something terrible was about to potentially happen and I need to be awake and ready for it. That's a miserable place to be when you think something bad's about to fall on your head. It's very hard to rest, saints, when you're fearful all the time. You think something's going to happen to you. Hard to rest, and I don't mean rest by just taking a nap, like I said. I mean having peace. Part of rest is peace. Part of rest is when you can get to a place where you can just commit yourself to wherever you're at without being jittery, you know. We get jittery sometimes. We're looking for security. You want to find your security in the right things. Find your security in the Lord. We can have confidence in Him. You know that, right? If you go just two chapters forward in the book of Hebrews, the next to the last verse or the sixth chapter of the book of Hebrews, you'd have to go back a verse or two to get the context, is another phrase that was in these songs here. We were talking about anchoring ourselves in several of these songs, weren't we? I've anchored in Jesus. Have you anchored in Jesus? I hope you have. If you've really anchored in Jesus, then the storms of life are not going to affect your state. They're not going to affect your eternal state. Anchor in something that is eternal. Anchor in the rock of ages, like the song says. The rock of ages is an eternal place that you can cast your anchor on. You don't anchor in something that could disappear at some point in time. You don't anchor in something that is temporal. Anchor in things that are eternal. Anchor your life on this. On this word of the living God, this is an eternal thing. It's eternal. It's not going anywhere. You can anchor your life on the word of God. It's not going away. It's not going to disappear at some point. You can anchor your life in the word of God in the sense of the capital W, in Jesus. You can anchor in Jesus. And you can anchor yourself into the authority and power that he had, which is part of what is being referred to at the end of this sixth chapter of Hebrews. If you just... Slip in here into the last few verses of this chapter. 16th verse, men verily swear by the greater, an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. If you're going to make an oath on something, you want to make an oath on something that has some security to it, don't you? 
wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. God made some promises, didn't he? If God makes a promise, he's going to keep it. The only kind of promises God doesn't keep are promises that are dependent upon some action in order for the person to receive the promise. And I personally believe that in the case of God's corporate promises, somebody will receive the promise. Most of the Old Testament believers, the Hebrews, didn't understand this promise, but God had made a promise that he was going to include the Gentiles in the plan of salvation. Isn't that amazing? When the Lord Jesus Christ did what he did, it expanded the kingdom. What used to be just available to the Hebrews and through a little small narrow window, some that might come into the Hebrew faith through what we sometimes refer to as the law of the stranger. There was a methodology that the Hebrews had in terms of how they dealt with strangers who came into Israel and wanted to be a part of the kingdom. If they wanted to be a part of Israel, there was a process of how they could become a part and there were certain benefits and rights they could receive if they wanted to be a part of Israel, but they couldn't receive all the benefits. There were some things they could not do. And there's some things they had to do if they wanted to receive more benefits. There were several stages to it. That'd be another subject you could talk on for a few hours. There were strangers that came into the nation of Israel that did believe in the God of Israel, but they weren't willing to go through all the process to truly become proselytes of that religion. They, for example, may not want to go through the process of circumcision. Well, if they didn't go through that process, they couldn't eat the Passover. They could be a part of other things, but they couldn't be a part of that. And no matter what happened, they could never be a king or a priest in Israel. I think it's very interesting. It even says this in the Bible, and I think it's probably a hint about something pretty powerful. When it says that a stranger, somebody who's not a full Israelite, could never be a king of Israel. That's part of the law of Moses. Why would you even need to say that? Of course they couldn't be a king of Israel because at some later point, only David's line would be able to be a king of Israel. So why would you even make the case they couldn't be a king of Israel? I think it's meaning to make a much deeper point than that. If you're going to be a part of what God's doing, you're going to have to be fully a part of what God's doing. You can't just be a stranger or a sojourner in the house of the Lord. You're going to have to be a, a fully invested member of the kingdom, saints. That's part of you finding that place of security. I started reading here in Hebrews 6 when he said, God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. He made promises to Israel. He's made promises to us. Do you believe in the promises of God? Do you believe that they will come to pass? you believe there's any power that... You better think about this question before you answer it entirely. You believe there's any power that could prevent them from coming to pass? God does leave it in our purview to resist. He allows resistance. Some people say, well, if God allowed you to resist, he wouldn't be sovereign. Did you hear the whole sentence I just quoted? What did I just say? If God, what's the next word? Say it loud. Come on now. That's not very loud. If God allows you to resist, that means he is obviously sovereign. If he's allowing it, that means he could stop your resistance. He's never been less than sovereign. The fact that God allows certain things to happen that may not be part of his temporal will, part of his will right in that moment, does not mean he's not sovereign because his final full will will be carried out. 
There is an immutability to the counsel of God that is a mighty thing, saints. You just have the choice of whether or not you're going to be able to be a part of it. But I want to be a part, don't you? He confirmed it to us by an oath. There's some promises God has made. Those promises are not going to be changed by any power in this universe. If you'll link yourself, if you'll anchor yourself to those promises, there's nothing that can steal away your relationship with the Lord God of heaven. You've got to cast your anchor right into those promises, though. You can't stand back and not be anchored to anything. Some people, their faith is an unanchored faith. It's not anchored to anything. I'll give you several examples how that could be. They're not really even sure about their faith. If you aren't really convinced of what you believe, your faith isn't anchored very securely. If you're not sure that God exists, if you're not sure that Jesus exists, if you're not sure that Jesus came to this earth and lived and died and was raised from the dead as well, because that's where the faith issue really comes in, is related to the resurrection. If you're not sure of that, how firmly anchored is your faith? If you're not convinced that he knows what he's doing, that's part of it. It isn't just that he did what he did. We have to have faith in that he did what he did. But we've got to have faith that he knows what he's doing right now. The Israelites might have looked at God when they were dealing with their challenges of their faith, wrestling with the faith they had. They might have looked at God and said, oh, we know what he did. I was there when he parted the Red Sea. I was there when he went through that barrage of plagues on Egypt, those 10 plagues. I saw it. I'm just not confident in what he's doing now. You know, that's exactly what they were dealing with. That generation that went to the wilderness had seen what God had done. They saw it with their own eyes. You'd have to be very foolish and blind as well to be able to have walked through the Red Sea and not said something beyond our power did that. Especially in the last couple of plagues, you realize those plagues ramped up. They weren't just all equal. I'm not necessarily suggesting every single plague was worse than the one before it, but they gradually did ramp up so that by the time you got to the end, it became far less likely anybody but God could be doing it. You know, after the first few times that the magicians were mimicking the plague or creating something in and of themselves or by some dark power of some kind, first few things they mimicked, but when it got up to the point where that staff struck the dust... And that dust changed from dust, which is an inanimate thing. It has no life in it. Dust has no life in it. You might think it does, the way it keeps growing on everything, and you have to keep cleaning it up. But dust has no life in it. God took that dust and changed it into something that was alive. That inanimate dust turned into animate life, into lice. It may not be the most exciting animate life. I doubt any of you want lice running around, but he changed it from something that was not alive to something that was alive. And that's where they finally stopped, as you know. You know this story well. They finally just stopped cold. They basically told Pharaoh, we're done with this. Can you imagine those two magicians, Janus and, if you want to pronounce it right, Janus and Yambres? When those two magicians looked at Pharaoh and said, this is it for us. You don't tell Pharaoh that. He could take your life in a blink of an eye. But they knew there isn't any further going. They said, this is as far as we go. Whatever it was we were doing up to this point that was looking like we're doing the same thing Moses is doing, whether it was pure trickery or whether there was some spiritual power behind it, we cannot match this. Taking death and turning it into life, taking something with no life, and recreate it into something that has life is beyond any power but God, saints.
You want to know who the true God of heaven is? There's no other being in this universe but God and the power invested in His Son Jesus that can take something that is undead, that has no life, that is inanimate, and make it animate and alive, praise His holy name. Our God can do that. Why would you want to serve a God that can't do that? How long are you going to be serving Him? Well, this life, because if he can't raise you from the dead, this is the whole relationship you'll get to have with whatever God you're going to serve. This little window of time in between your birth and your death. We serve a God who calls those things that are not as though they are, saints. Even if some has no life in it, he can call it as if it's alive and bring it into life. So they stopped, and you know the story. Their response in why they stopped, they said, this is beyond us. This is the finger of God. This is something bigger than anybody on this earth can do, bringing some life out of something that's not alive. And then from that point forward, as you can see, there was a differentiation made and a ramping up of some of those plagues till you get to the end where it's very dramatic. The last two plagues were tremendously dramatic situations. When the, you can darken the entire sky and yet there is somehow light still in Goshen. It's one of those things that is such a mystery to try to wrap your mind around. And it's not just spiritual, it was literal. There was literal darkness. It wasn't just figuratively saying that the Egyptians were lost in spiritual darkness and the Israelites had spiritual light. That's what it means to us figuratively, but it literally happened. Darkness fell on Egypt. Palpable darkness. Darkness you could touch, it was so thick. But there was still light in Goshen. Aren't you glad there's still light among the people of God? Because we've got the same condition today in its figurative sense. This world is deep in darkness. It is palpable too. You can almost feel it walking around in some places. I don't just mean their minds are blinded by the God of this world. They are. So the scripture says the God of this world has blinded them so that they can't even see. They can't even respond to the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. God of this world's blinded them. But it's not just blindness. It's a terrible wickedness moral darkness that's resting on this earth right now. Aren't you glad there's light in Goshen, spiritually? Thank the Lord for that. But you can feel the darkness out there. You go out close enough to it, you'll feel it. It is a tangible darkness, just like there's a tangible light among the people of God. You know, when you feel the Spirit of God come in, it creates a warmth and an illumination that ought to tell you there is light still in Goshen. It's the Spirit that brings light to the people of God. If you are in a spiritless place, you won't have much light. You're lucky to have any light at all, and most light you'll have in a place that is spiritless is man-made light. That's dangerous when it's man-made light, don't you think? So he said here that he confirmed this by an oath, that by two immutable things. Immutable just means something that can't be changed, something that has no flexibility to it, something that is unchangeable. I appreciate the fact that God has some unchangeable promises. It'd be pretty rough if God just said, you know what, I did send my son. He did offer his life for the sins of mankind, but so many of them have rejected him. I think I'm just going to withdraw the offer entirely. Wouldn't that be horrible? What if God just got tired of waiting and we're almost to 2,000 years from the time of that sacrifice. We're creeping up on it. In this generation, we will hit the 2,000-year mark since the time of the sacrifice of Christ and His resurrection. What if God just said, you know what? I have had it. I've given these folks a chance for 1,900 years, and so many of them rejected my son. I'm just going to rescind the offer. 
Aren't you glad it's an immutable offer? Now, what's immutable about the offer is not that people are forced to receive it. It's that it's always there. You may not choose to receive it, but it's there. And nobody can keep you from receiving it if you will choose to receive it. If you'll open up your heart to the Lord God of heaven and ask to be in relationship with Him, the offer is open. The offer is open. And it's a promise that He's made in giving His Son that is a precious thing. You can lay hold of it right now if you haven't laid hold of it. If there is a person in this building who has not laid hold of the promises of God through the relationship that comes with being in relationship with Christ, right now would be the time. If you feel anything in my words, listen, you're going to have to feel something. There's something about the Word of God and the Spirit of God. You're going to feel it. I don't know how many times I've been talking about that lately. I don't know why I feel that burden. Maybe somebody in here hasn't felt it. Maybe somebody in here wants to feel it in a greater way. Maybe that's why God's putting that burden on my heart. Keep repeating that. You need to feel your salvation. If you're free, don't you think you'll feel free? If you're strong, will you feel strong? If God gives you strength, do you think you're going to feel stronger? If God looses your bonds and you were a prisoner, do you think you'll now feel free? Salvation is an experiential thing, saints. It's something you should feel. I want you to feel it. And if there's something in my words or in the music or anything else that has occurred in this service today that causes you to want to feel more, then you know that it's something that the great God of heaven is touching your mind and giving you that opportunity. A call has gone out. Now you've got to respond to the call. If you want to be part of the chosen, you've got to respond to the call. The call goes out in a more general way. The chosen element, remember called, chosen, and faithful? The chosen element are those who respond to the call and enter into relationship. God wants to be in a relationship with all of us. But not everybody will respond to His call. And He's not going to choose people that haven't responded to the call. What do you think of that? Sometimes people confuse the idea of what New Testament election is talking about. Kletoi is the word for called, the called. Eklektoi is the word for the chosen. Those are not the same word. You've got to be called first. And once you're called, you've got the opportunity to be chosen. And once you're chosen, you've got the opportunity to be faithful. Say, that doesn't sound like an opportunity. That sounds like work. Sounds like a job. That's an opportunity that God would say, I'll let you work for me. I'll let you be a part of my kingdom. I'll give you a job. Who would you rather get a job offer from? Can you think of somebody you'd rather have a job offer from than the great God of heaven? I hope you can't think of somebody, my Lord in heaven. Can you think of any salary that might be a little bit better offer, you know? Does anybody pay better than God? Anybody think anyone pays better than God? Maybe we need to have another talk. I need to talk about a whole different subject if you think someone pays better than God does. Anything better than a penny? That doesn't sound so good now, does it? Is there any higher paycheck in all of the universe than the single penny that God is going to give you if you'll be faithful? Hmm. Just a penny. 
It's a big penny. You're right about that. That's a real big penny, Brother Lee. Amen. Just think of this. You realize that's how powerful and mighty our God is that he refers to eternal life and immortality as a penny to him. It's just that little of a gift. To us, that's so far beyond our comprehension. We can't even wrap our mind around what eternity even means. Try to wrap your mind around, don't do it this morning while I'm talking or you won't hear another word I'm saying, but try to wrap your mind around the conception that God has always existed and will always exist, that he has no beginning. Try to wrap your mind, given that we are in a dimension that is based somewhat on linear ideas, linear time, try to wrap your mind around the idea that God exists outside of time and space or that he never had an origin. How do you even understand that? Try to wrap your mind around the idea of living eternally, no death, no ending. Wrap your mind around that if you can. Wait till after service to ponder it or you'll never hear another word I'm saying. But think about that. To God, it's just a penny. Giving you that is just a penny. How great is our God, saints? How great is our God? That it's that little to Him. It's a little thing to give you eternal life and immortality. And what He's asking from you in return is a little thing. He isn't asking you for much. Do you really think your life is something big in the scheme of comparison with eternity? Even if we still were living to the age of the pre-flood patriarchs, which quickly begin to diminish after the floods, you know, you got to make a study of that. How fast the ages of the patriarchal individuals dropped after the flood. There may be a reason for that, but after the flood, the length of their ages went down dramatically and quickly. And in a few generations, they were down to a much more normative type of ages. Still some living well up over 100, but that was at the height at that point. Once you get into the 100s, Even Adam, living as long as he did. Even Methuselah, just about 31 years shy of a thousand. That's just a drop, just a tiny drop of time in eternity. If Methuselah had given all 969 of his years to the great God of heaven, it would have been a tiny investment to receive the penny that is eternal life and immortality, don't you think? And what are we being asked to give? Not much. Is this life so valuable to you that it's worth more than eternal life? It's not to me. There's things I love in this life. But if the things you love in this life... Listen, this is not complicated. Sometimes we think about this present life and it's hard to think about the future life for a couple reasons. One of them is the same thing I talked about earlier. We could be deficient in our faith. All of us are, I think, on some level. But certainly when it comes to the future, things we haven't seen or experienced yet, it's hard to have the kind of faith you can have in something you have seen, isn't it? That's not easy to have faith in the resurrection, faith in eternal life. But if you really believe there's an opportunity for eternal life, and you're so fastened to this present life because of the things in this present life, do you realize whatever it is you love in this present life that is truly a good thing, it would be far better being able to have it in eternity than in this little window. Say, well, I love my family. I love my friends. I love the people of God. Well, then spend eternity with them. Say, well, it'll break my heart to have to leave this life. Well, if you're going to leave this life and re-enter it again, as soon as you open your eyes, what difference does that make? From our perspective, saints, death and life are very different than they are from God's perspective. But they're not different if you want to think about it. 
We're looking at death and life from the outside. And if, God forbid, one of you precious saints would die today, we may have to wait a long time before we see you again. But how long would they have to wait before they see us again? Anyone want to hazard a guess? How many years? How many seconds? I'm going to make it easy on you. How many seconds from the moment of a saint passing truly into death who has the hope of a resurrection, and it doesn't make any difference how someone sees the resurrection or heaven. It makes no difference in terms of this. People get so caught up in arguing over whether people go immediately into heaven or whether they're waiting for a resurrection or who fits into each category. The bottom line, honestly, is it doesn't matter because from your perspective, it's going to be exactly the same amount of time. Four minutes and 37 seconds. Surely someone will laugh at that because I just pulled it out of a hat. You know how long it'll be as far as you're concerned? No time. You say, well, if that person dies, isn't it horrible? They're lying in the grave all that time. It doesn't matter where you think their soul is at. They're not lying in the grave all that time from their perspective. The moment death fully affects their body and soul, that individual is going to wake up in the same moment from their perspective. There was no cutoff point from their perspective. They closed their eyes and they reopened their eyes. It doesn't matter if there's a thousand years between or five seconds between or no time at all. They closed their eyes and they opened their eyes. That's a blessed thing. Brother Lee, when you see your precious wife again, I was there when precious sister Polly passed. I was in the room. When we see her again, Brother Lee, she's not going to have any consciousness of time having passed between those visitations. She's going to open her eyes and I hope she sees us again. She's going to want to see you quicker than me, I'm sure. But I hope she sees us again. I know she will. It's up to us whether we will. That's the thing. I have no doubt about Sister Polly. And I have no doubt about Brother Lee either. So I better just worry about myself, right? You better too. I want to be not just called to this precious calling God's given us. I want to be chosen to remain a part of it. And there's ways you can know if you're called and chosen. Listen, I said here a few minutes ago, if you're feeling something, feeling is important. If you're feeling something when I'm speaking these words, you're called. Do I need to be more complicated than that? If you have not yet responded to the message of the gospel, or even if you have, and you're wanting to rise to a higher place in God, you're wanting to take more ground in your spiritual life, you're wanting to develop more in your spiritual maturity, if you're feeling something in the words that I'm speaking, and it's more than just an emotional response to my emotions, but it's a spiritual response that is affecting both of our emotions, then I can tell you right now, you're called, praise His holy name. Because if you can feel the call of God through the words of God, that is God calling you. And if you can feel it, you know you're called. I hope everybody in the building is feeling what I'm feeling here today. It's good to be called, praise His holy name. Now, once you're called, respond to the call. Being called isn't the same thing as being chosen. That seems strange. You think once God calls you, He automatically has chosen you. No, no. There has to be a reciprocal response from you to the call. I've been in places where I know somebody felt something when we were preaching messages. One person may have responded. Someone else may not have responded and both of them felt something. 
The way you can know sometimes is sometimes the people that don't respond get uncomfortable with the feeling they're feeling. Not because it's a bad feeling, but because they know it's going to demand change. It's going to demand a choice they're not ready to make. But somebody else maybe is longing for change. They're ready to make the choice. Just tell me what to do, Lord. Give me the opportunity and I'll do it. And when they hear the call, their heart leaps in them. What could I do but turn to the Lord? I hear His voice. I feel His presence. What an opportunity that God would let me be a part of His kingdom. They choose Him and He chooses them. It's a reciprocal. It's a bilateral choice. You've got to choose God. God's got to choose you. It's a relationship. Relationships based on choice. Isn't that precious? You've got to hear the call first because you don't even know if there is an opportunity for a relationship. Jesus said one of the most mysterious statements, but it is so powerful in that fifth chapter of John talking about this very thing. One of the statements is down around the 25th verse. The other one is just a couple verses later. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is. Now, you know this, I'm sure, but pay close attention to the exact wording of these statements because these are not the same statements in these couple verses. They're talking about two different things. The hour is coming and now is. Isn't that interesting? Why wouldn't you just say the hour now is? That's because it isn't just now. You know, if Jesus had just said to them, the hour now is, someone would say, well, now he made that call back then, but it's not going forth anymore. I'm going to tell you what, it's still going forth right now. That same voice is still being heard right now. The hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear His voice shall live. If you don't understand how the Bible uses the term dead and even live, you may not realize this is not just talking about the folks that Jesus was going to raise from the dead physically in His ministry. And I think some people believe that's what it's saying. That right now there's people like the daughter of Jairus that I'm going to go in there and say, Talitha kumi to that little girl, little lamb, wake up. And she's going to wake up. That's not what he's talking about. That's a precious thing. But there were only a couple of people recorded that you know for sure Jesus raised from the dead in terms of individuals like that, that he personally spoke to and they raised from the dead. That's not what this is talking about. That's talking about the fact that there are people who are spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins that would hear the voice of the Son of the living God and spiritual life would start to begin within them. It begins with words. Spiritual life begins with words. Even before you're filled with the Spirit, it begins with words. Because the words are the seed that the Spirit germinates. It begins with words. The incorruptible seed of the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. How can we hear except there be a preacher? Somebody preaches the Gospel message, and the words of that permeate down to your heart. And they take root. And the seed of that is calling out for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Do you realize that? Do you know when God plants His seed in your heart, the seed of His Word in your heart, it starts crying out for the Holy Ghost. Because the seed of the Word of God cannot come to full development without the Spirit of the living God bathing it and infusing it and filling you. And so the moment you begin to be filled with the true Word of God, there's going to be a longing in your heart for more. Lord, fill me. Fill me with Your Word. Fill me with Your Spirit. I've heard Your calling now. Let me know I'm chosen. You know you need to know you're chosen. You can hear the calling. 
But you may wonder if you're chosen. There's a lot of things that would demonstrate whether or not you're chosen of God. At the heart of knowing whether someone's chosen of God, it's the events in between your initial calling and the end result that should prove to you and reinforce to you, I am chosen of God. You know if you turned to the Lord when He called to you and fell on your face or your knees or lifted your head or whatever other manifestation you had to cry out to God and you in true faith and repentance were converted from your past life, that's the first step that lets you know you've been chosen. Chosen out of this world. Do you know if you were filled with the Holy Ghost, it's evidence that you've been chosen? That's why in one of those passages where it uses that exact language, the very same word. It's in the book of Matthew where it's talking about that marriage supper that was made and the king sent out people announcing it all over the countryside. That's the calling, the invitation. Everybody did not show up. You want to see all three stages? Everybody did not show up. And he sent the call out everywhere. Some people showed up and they had the right garments on. And some people showed up without the right garments. One individual showed up without a wedding garment, used as the example in the parable. And Jesus said that they said to that man, why are you thinking you're going to come in here without a wedding garment on? And he was speechless. That's one of the most powerful figurative statements in any of those parables, if you understand what it's talking about. That individual had been called. He might have even been able to be chosen, but he did not fulfill the requirements to be able to be a part of that company. We want to do what we have to do to be a part of the kingdom of God, don't we? Some things, you, as I said, you've got no control whatsoever over. You ought to be thrilled if you hear the call of God. If you're one of those folks talked about in Matthew 5.25, the dead. All of us start out dead. All of us start out dead. You might think we start out alive because you come mewling and screaming into the world as a little infant, but you were dead the moment you were born. You're born in sin and shaping in iniquity. You were dead from the standpoint of spiritual life the moment you were born, naturally. So we're all dead to begin with. All of us need to hear the voice of the Son of God if we want to live. And if we hear His voice... The word hear, H-E-A-R, is a pretty powerful word in the Bible. There's another thing you could study out and really make a good study of it. The Hebrew language, the word hear, which is what's used in Deuteronomy 6.4, 6.5, when it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. That word hear is the Hebrew word shema. That doesn't just mean to hear like you heard it in the sense of someone giving you a hearing test and they say, did you hear the little sound? Yeah, I heard it. That word here, just like the word faith, is far deeper than just the fact that it hit your brain. It means to hear and to respond, to hear and to obey. It's far deeper than the idea of just having heard something and not doing anything about it. When God says, hear, O Israel, He means hear and do. God's not expecting you to hear His word and disobey it. God's not expecting you to hear His voice and ignore it. It's automatically built into the meaning of that word that hearing also communicates the idea of responding, obeying, doing what you're hearing. Aren't you glad you heard the Lord's voice? If you really heard it, then you responded to it. You weren't really hearing it if you didn't respond to it. How could you not? You know how powerful the voice of the Lord is when it's speaking? It breaketh the cedars, the Scripture says. It parts the waters. It's powerful, saints. 
If you really heard the voice of the Lord, you couldn't help but respond to it. It's when you're not really hearing it. You're blocking it out with your own desires or your own distractions. You're not really hearing. But if you really hear it... So when God says hear, He means I want you to hear what I'm saying. I want a response. When you're called, you're hearing the voice of the Lord. They that hear His voice shall live. You'll be chosen to life if you hear His voice. And just a couple verses later, it shifts the language a little bit. This all by itself proves to you that there is two different things being talked about in this passage because there'd be no point whatsoever in repeating this if it was talking about exactly the same thing. But just a couple verses later, that's John 5.27, when he says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming. Listen to this. He didn't say the hour now is. The hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. And they that hear his voice, they're going to come forth. That's talking about a literal resurrection. Matthew 5.25 was talking about a spiritual resurrection. Jesus was not raising all the dead right there at that time in his life. That's why he says the hour is coming. That's out in the future when that happens. But the hour was present that his voice was bringing people to life spiritually. If you heard his voice, as I said, you've heard the call. If you responded to his voice, then you might say you've been chosen. Isn't it good to be chosen? Well, be faithful too. Don't just be chosen, be faithful. You really want to become a full citizen of the kingdom. I said that in the days of Israel, there were times when people could enter into Israel and be a part, but they couldn't be a full citizen unless they went through certain processes. And even then, under the law of Moses, they couldn't have the same rights that someone that is a full Israelite might have. You can have those rights right now, you realize. You realize you can have the same full birthright privileges, spiritually speaking. Today, you can have those same spiritual birthright privileges, no matter what your lineage may be. So you want to be a full citizen. You don't want to be some stranger temporarily there. You want to have full citizenship. There's some things you need to do if you're leaving one kingdom and going to another, you know. You're going to have to, for one thing, relinquish your past citizenship. You can't hold dual citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, saints. God has no intent whatsoever to allow you to continue to be a citizen of some other kingdom and his kingdom too. There's some nations that allow that. They allow you to have dual citizenship. You can be a full citizen of one nation, a full citizen of another, but not the kingdom of heaven, saints. All other citizenships have to be relinquished, revoked. That's not hard to do. Why would you want another citizenship? You know the reason why people hold dual citizenships? Because there's something in that other nation that's a benefit or something there that they might receive by being a citizen they can't get in the other country. Is there something outside the kingdom of God that you can't get in the kingdom of God? Well, sure. There's a whole lot of sinful things that you don't need. You're going to have to revoke your citizenship. That's what you're doing when you're falling down an altar or in whatever form you confess and repent of your sins and cry out on Jesus. You know what you're really doing? You are revoking your citizenship. You're saying, I'm sorry for what I used to do. I'm sorry I'm from outside of your kingdom. I want to be a part of your kingdom. I want to be a part of your people. I don't want to be a part of this old world anymore. I want to revoke my citizenship in the old world. That's what it means to be redeemed. It's what it means to be rescued from your past life. You've got to leave it behind. You've got to leave it behind, saints. Give it up. So I said relinquish it. Revoke is a little bit stronger word. That really means to make a declaration. I'm done with it. I'm done with the old world. Done with my old life. 
That's what true conversion ought to be. That you are truly done with the past. Not that you want to get it cleaned up so you can still tinker with it for a while until it builds up again. But that you're done with it. That's the only way you're truly going to be able to be a full citizen of the kingdom of heaven. In whatever form it is in right now in our present day, you're going to have to revoke your past citizenship. You're going to have to learn something about the kingdom. You know, when people come into our nation, they have to go through a process if they're going to become a legal citizen of learning a lot of things about our nation. Some of them are things most of the people born here don't even know very much about anymore. Isn't that a shame? But they're required to learn those things. You're going to have to learn some things about the kingdom of heaven to be a citizen here. You want to remain a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? You can't just come in the kingdom and say, praise the Lord, I'm part of the kingdom now. And listen, I'm going to hold on to my original language I spoke in the nation I came from. I'm going to hold on to my original culture that I grew up in in the nation I came from. You think so? Not in the kingdom of heaven, you're not. You're going to have to learn the language of the kingdom. You're going to have to learn the culture of the kingdom. You're not going to be able to come into the kingdom of heaven and bring in worldly culture, bring in a worldly language, so to speak, some other language. I'm talking about theologically speaking. You've got to come into the kingdom and relearn some things. You're going to find out about the laws of the kingdom. You know, every kingdom's got different laws. You go to different places in the world, there are laws that you better be careful of because you may never think you're breaking a law. You could be breaking a law somewhere because they've got a law against certain things. You might want to know the laws of that kingdom. There are laws to the kingdom of God, saints. You know that, right? There are laws. There's laws. There's boundaries. You better know the laws of the kingdom. You want to be a permanent member of the kingdom. Learn about the kingdom. Learn about its laws. Learn about its leadership. What's the leadership of the kingdom? What kind of leadership is it? Is there any authority in the kingdom? And I'm not just talking about man's authority. There's authorities. God calls men for positions of authority. That's what the ministry is. The ministry is in part a position of authority in the visible present kingdom. One day you won't need that. When everybody's reached a full level of development, there won't be any need for that kind of operation anymore in terms of a ministerial operation that has humans involved in it. But right now, saints, we're all in a developmental process, and the kingdom has an order to it that's very intentional. But I'm not, by the way, referring to human beings. I'm talking about what is the government of the kingdom made up of? There is a ministry that's part of it under the new covenant, but you need to realize that the government is made up of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And what is the role of God the Father? What is the role of Jesus Christ the Son? So let's just pick Jesus out. What is the relational role between you and Jesus? Are there any rules to the relationship? Rules? Rules? Every relationship has rules. You may not realize there's rules, but they're many times unspoken. There's certain things you might say to your spouse that after you've been married a while, you have learned you'd better not say that because of the response you're going to get, right? That may not be written down anywhere. It wasn't in your marriage certificate or covenant if you're going to be more accurate if you wrote something down. It might not have even been in your vows in any real specific way, but you just learn after a while there's certain things you don't say and do because of the type of response you're going to get. It will not be well received. And that's a generally politically correct way of saying it. There's certain rules you learn. There's certain rules you learn even in terms of communication with somebody in your relationship with. You better be wise enough to know how to answer the question when they say, how do I look? 
The best thing you could possibly do is be blinded by love. I don't mean that there's something wrong with them, but I mean that no matter how they look, they look good to you. That's the safest place you could be. Let me tell you something. You better be the same way about God, not blinded by love, but you better be blinded to any other thing being more beautiful than Him, any other thing being more beautiful than Jesus. There are rules to relationships, aren't there? There are certain rules to the relationship that you have with the Lord. There are certain things that are necessary for that relationship to be maintained and for you not to go outside the boundaries of that relationship. It'd be pretty important to know what they are, wouldn't you think? As I said, some things are almost unspoken. Common sense teaches you it after a while. There are certain things you just don't do. But some things the Bible is very clear about in terms of our relationship with the Lord. It's very clear about what kind of relationship He's looking for with us. So have you recognized what the rules of your relationship with the Lord are? Is He just your Savior? Just. How dare you say just, Brother Bear? That's everything. It's everything that He's our Savior, isn't it? That covers the whole gamut of our relationship with Him is that He's our Savior, right? Somebody better answer and better do it loud so I know who to argue with or to pat on the back. (laughs) No, it's not. He is our Savior, and without that, there would be no relationship. So in some sense, it is everything because there's no relationship without that. But He's our Lord, too. He's Savior and Lord. And if we don't realize that that's the whole definition of our relationship, we will not be in right relationship. In order to be in right relationship with Him, we need to realize He's our Redeemer and our Ruler. He rescued us, thank God. We're like some of these immigrants that you see fleeing from countries where they're just hoping they can make it in somewhere where it might be safe. Just hoping they can get to a place of safety. And He rescued you out of that. And He brought you to His kingdom. Praise His holy name. Aren't you glad He rescued you out of that terrible sea that we were singing about? The storms crashing and the waves and the other things that go on in this wicked world. All the tumult of the present age we're living in. Aren't you glad God rescued you out of that terrible deep miry clay? Took you out of the sea of mankind and set you up in a secure place? He rescued you from your old life, but He wants to bring you into a new life. Him rescuing you isn't the end. It's the beginning. It's one of the most glorious things in the world, and we ought never to minimize the incredible nature of it. The fact that you were rescued means everything. Because if He hadn't rescued you, there wouldn't be anything else that could occur. You couldn't come into the kingdom if He hadn't rescued you out of the old world. You couldn't eventually... Listen, not every citizen's a son. You couldn't eventually become a son. Right now, not every citizen of the kingdom is a son of God. But one day, every citizen of the kingdom will be a son of God. There are some people that have come into the kingdom, but they have not yet become sons of God. And they certainly haven't grown up into full sonship either. But one day, every citizen of the kingdom will be a son. Thank God we were rescued. Thank God we were redeemed from our past. Thank the Lord He's given us this opportunity by calling us. But we've got to recognize that He's not just Savior. That's how He introduces Himself to us. That's the initial relationship that we have with Him is that He's our Savior because until He's your Savior, He can't be anything else. You belong to somebody else before He saves you. Whether you want to say you belong to yourself or you belong to the God of this world, the God of this world is not you. 
If you were the God of this world, you'd have your way a whole lot more often, wouldn't you? You belong to the God of this world or you belong to yourself or both, depending on how you want to define it. But I'll tell you right now, that relationship has to be broken in order for you to belong to him. And the only way he can get you to a place where he can be your Lord is first to save you. He's got to break your ties to whatever was Lord over you before that. If you were Lord over yourself, if there was some other power that you were under the influence or sway of, that has to be broken so he can become your Lord. That's how He saves us. He saves us out of that condition. Now, once we've been saved, saints, He's got to become our Lord as well. That's part of what is meant in Matthew 7, that we've talked about here lately, when He says, many will say, Lord, Lord. You notice what He said there. Many will say, Lord, Lord. You know what He's really saying when He's saying that? They never did make me their Lord. They are just calling me that. Calling Jesus Lord without submitting to his lordship doesn't mean anything. You can call him your Lord and Savior till you go blue in the face. But if he is only your Savior and he has never had any authority over your life, he's not your Lord. And if you're going to be saved, he's going to have to be both Lord and Savior. That's where the power comes together in its fullness. It is an incredible thing that he had the power to save you from the darkness of this world called you out of that darkness. If you go to Peter's statements in 1 Peter 2, when he said, you're a royal priesthood. Both these words called and chosen are in this little passage. A chosen generation. Peculiar people. Holy nation. You should show forth the praises. How do you show forth the praises? If I'm sitting here this morning while these songs are playing and the Spirit is moving... And I lift my hands to God, but I have no intention of lowering my will to God. Am I really showing forth his praises? Oh, that's deep. You better think about that. There's a lot of people who lift their hands without lowering themselves to him. They want to worship. They want to show his praises as much as they can, shouting out and everything else. But they have never bent the knee. You know, every tongue is going to confess and every knee is going to bow. We better not just confess Him with our tongue without bowing our knee. There's a lot of people that do that. They confess Him all day long with their tongue, but their life does not confess Him. You know they haven't bowed the knee because of the way they're living their life. God forbid, saints, let's make Him Lord and Savior. That's the full power being invested on your behalf. I want every bit of the power that He can afford for me, don't you? Don't you want to let Him have full authority in your life? The only way you're ever going to be fully saved is if you give him full authority. You'll never be fully saved without submitting fully to his authority. You can be saved from the past, but you'll never be fully saved without submitting to his authority. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Every one. Every one who's going to live. There's some people that never will confess that. But everyone that's going to live is going to bow the knee. Everyone that's going to live is going to confess his name. They're not just going to say, Lord, Lord, they're going to mean it. When they say you're my Lord, they mean my life is yours. My life is yours. Thank you for giving me my life. That's how you're my Savior. And now I'm giving it back so you can be my Lord. He became your Savior when he gave your life back to you. You were already a slave to something else. And when he freed you and gave your life back to you, he became your savior. 
but He wants to be your Lord. And in order to be your Lord, you've got to say, this life you've given me, I'm going to give to you. Amen? That's exactly what happened with Abraham and Isaac, you know. Abraham received the promise. The son that he should have never had at 100 years of age, 99, 100 years of age, and his wife, 89, 90 years of age, when she was pregnant and had that child, never should have had that child. He received the promise. But the test of God was, will you give it back to me? I gave you this child. Will you give him to me? You see how simple that is to show the precedent for how God works? When the Lord gives you your life by redeeming you from your past sins and you feel the freedom that's talked about in Romans 6 and 7 and 8, talking about how it ought not to create a desire for lasciviousness, no. The fact that you're free, you've been freed, should not cause you to say, praise the Lord, I can sin at will. Now there's no penalty. There is a penalty. The soul that sinneth, it shall surely Period. It will die. You better get past that place where you're in that situation. You can be delivered from your past sins, and I hope you have been. If you've not been delivered from your past sins, if you're still very young and you're beginning to feel something in some of these services, if you are a child in this church and you're hearing my voice and you can feel something inside of you starting to tingle, starting to warm to the words, talking about Jesus, just open your heart to Him. Say, Lord, I want to be a part of your kingdom. We use this little phrase once in a while. It's not exactly biblical, though it is if you want to stretch its meaning out. Lord, come into my heart. Open your heart to the Lord. Ask the Lord to come into your heart. Well, all that is not precisely biblical, but it's true. Because if the Spirit of God comes in, it's going to the heart. It goes straight to the heart. The heart's what has to be changed. So when you let the Lord into your life, you're letting Him into your heart. Let Him into your heart. Let Him have some authority over your life. Let Him be Lord. Don't just be called and don't even just be rescued out. Eventually, if you stay in the right relationship with the Lord, you stay faithful unto death, you'll have a crown of eternal life. Those that are faithful unto death. You got to maintain your faithfulness, don't you? Well, you come into this nation, you're going to have to abide by its laws. You come into this nation, you're going to have to recognize the rightful ruler. You can't argue you're part of the kingdom if you can't obey the laws of the kingdom. You can't argue you're truly part of the kingdom if you won't recognize the sovereignty of the ruler. You ought to have sovereignty over your life. You ought to take joy in the understanding that Jesus is both your Lord and Savior. You ought to study the passages where that language is used. It's not a long series of passages in the Bible. Look at the passages where Jesus is called Lord and Savior. They're significant, especially in Peter's writing. Second Peter has, I think, three different chapters where it talks about this concept of Him being your Lord and Savior. In the second chapter of Second Peter, around the 19th verse, maybe for three or four verses it goes, talking about while they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption is how that starts. For of whom a man is overcome, the same as he brought into bondage. For if after they've escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, they're again entangled therein. No, that's interesting. And overcome, the latter end is worse than the beginning. In other words, if he's rescued you from your past life and you go back and get entangled in it, you're worse off than you were to begin with. You've got to grow. I think that's in the third chapter where it says grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's our Lord and Savior, isn't He? He's the one that has called us. 
the one that is involved in choosing us, the one to whom we have to be faithful. I've been using those verses from Revelation 17, you realize, right after it's talking about the ten horns and the beastly power rising up and persecuting the people of God. I think it's the 14th verse, isn't it, of Revelation 17? When he said, these... The these there are that last beastly power and the ten horns are going to rise up at that time. Shall make war with the Lamb. That's Jesus, obviously. And the Lamb shall overcome them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. You want to be with Him? You're going to have to be called, chosen, and faithful too. That's the very things Jesus talked about several times in the Gospels. And Matthew in particular is recorded where he talked about many are called and few chosen. One of the times is the example I used a little bit earlier when I was talking about the marriage supper. Do you realize that individual who did not come to the marriage supper in the proper apparel was cast out into outer darkness? And following that statement, Jesus said, many are called. That man was even called to the extent that he heard the invitation and came. But he couldn't be chosen because he wasn't properly prepared to be a part There's a preparation that goes into being a part of what God is doing. God wants a prepared people. Both in Matthew 20 and in Matthew 22, Jesus uses those phrases, talking about many are called and few are chosen. You could tie that to Revelation 12, where you see this precious group of individuals. That's in the 10th verse, where he said, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation. Look, there's been a war that's been going on in heaven. It hasn't ended yet. That war is still going on. The war that was going on in heaven in Revelation 12 is still going on right now. That war will continue going on until the last overcomer defeats the adversary. I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them day and night before our God. He's still accusing the brethren. That hasn't ended yet. Do you know when he won't be able to accuse the brethren anymore? When there's no one left to accuse. Everyone he could accuse has put their foot on his neck, praise his holy name. And there's no one else he can accuse. Won't that be a day? You ought to be painting some pictures. When I say, won't that be a day? I want you to paint a picture in your brain. Won't that be a day when there's no one left to be accused? They overcame him. Here's how they overcame him. By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and that they loved not their lives unto the death. I'm not intending to infer this is intended to be a perfect parallel, but I want you in your mind to put those three statements I just quoted out of Revelation 14 right alongside these three in Revelation 12, called, chosen, faithful. Line those up in your brain and right beside them put, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They love not their lives to the death. Do you know the reason you can know that you were called? Is because you heard the word of the living God and responded to it and the blood of the Lamb was applied to your life. That's how you know you were called and responded to the call because if you were called and didn't respond, you don't fit into any of these categories. But if you were called and actually responded and you could now be part of the chosen group, what transfers you from hearing the calling and responding to it and now being a part of the kingdom is that you heard the words, you responded to the word, and you had the blood of Jesus applied to your life. That's the evidence you were called and now can be a part of the chosen group. But notice the next phrase. 
One of the other things they overcame him by was the word of their testimony. You know what I told you earlier? You know how you're chosen? When I heard a man of God preach the word of God, I felt something. I knew I was called. The Spirit touched me. I knew I was called. Those are the beginnings of the word of your testimony, you know. You know how often people, when they give their testimony, go back to when they were saved? I remember the night when I was saved. I remember the night when I was filled with the Holy Ghost. And you ought to remember a lot of other nights and days as well when God interacted with you in different ways throughout your Christian journey. I'll bet those weren't the only two times is when you first had faith and repentance and were filled with the Holy Ghost. I'll bet there's other times God touched you. I'll bet there's other times that God interacted with you that built your testimony so that when you look back at your testimony, you can say, this is where the Lord met me. This is where the Lord touched me. Sister Alda's beautiful testimony here today that she gave. Talking about how she got such a precious touch. And the Lord touched her body and removed that terrible lurking condition. Isn't it precious when God just touches you? Delivers you from something like that? Who wants to live under fear of some terrible thing happening to them? This precious testimony Sister Alda gave, that's part of the word of her testimony. And I have no doubt about this precious sister, this is the case. If the Lord were to ask Sister Alda to do something more than she's already done for him, do you know one of the reasons I know she would say yes? Not only because of her precious spirit, but because she's had enough experiences with God to know God is good and God knows what he's doing and God will take care of you if you'll put your life in his hands. God will watch over you. God will direct you. Even if he directs you through troubled water, God will take care of you. And when you come out the other side, you'll be in a wealthy place. Praise his holy name. I don't mean you'll have your bank account full. I mean spiritually wealthy. Far better than a full bank account. Praise His holy name, saints. That's part of the word of your testimony. You know what makes my faith as strong as it is presently, and I hope it never weakens and it continues to grow in strength? I've got a long testimony. I hope you do too. I don't mean one long extended testimony. I mean a battery of testimonies. One event after another that God met with me. One time after another, God spoke or acted or delivered me, saved me from terrible conditions, took me up out of the darkness, set my feet on a rock. That's a testimony all by itself. If God's done nothing else for you, if He delivered you from the darkness of this world and translated you into the kingdom of His dear Son, praise His mighty name, you've got the greatest testimony you could ever have. If He's adopted you into His household, you're not just a citizen anymore. Temporal. Citizenship in the kingdom is a temporary position. Because every citizen will one day have to become a son or they're not going to be able to maintain their citizenship. If you don't grow up into full maturity, you will be ejected out of the kingdom. There are many evidences of that. I just gave you one of an individual who got the invitation. He had the engraved invitation to the marriage supper. Showed up with the wrong garment on and was thrown into outer darkness. I can give you many other examples of that. The parable of the pounds, the parable of the talents are both very, very simple examples. All of them were given something from the Lord. They were all His servants. The unproductive servant, though, was taken and thrown out into outer darkness, just like the individual at the marriage supper. Don't just be called. Don't just be chosen. Let the word of your testimony build into a crescendo so that it gives you confidence. 
God has been on my side. That does not mean you've always gotten your way. God being on your side doesn't mean God gave you everything you wanted. God being on your side means that even when I got things I didn't want, that God let me have that I didn't want, experiences I didn't want, conditions I didn't want to have to face, heartbreaks, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus and I've learned to trust in God. You know why? Because looking back on those experiences, I see how they brought me closer to the Lord. That'll make you trust. Even the difficult places, God used them to draw me closer to Him. And where better to be than closer to the Lord? So let the word of your testimony build line upon line upon line of experience. The Lord met me here, and the Lord met me here, and the Lord answered this prayer. That's why we ought to be coming in here every time we are ready to have a service thinking, what prayers did God answer for me this week? I hope every prayer service we have in this church, something happens somewhere on some level in that week that when we come in here, we can have a testimony service as part of our prayer service, like we did this morning, where one of you precious saints says, I was crying out to God for help last week, and he heard my voice, praise his holy name. I had a need, and God met it. I had a condition I was dealing with, and God brought me through, praise his holy name. And my testimony is growing, and I'm overcoming the enemy of my soul by the word of my testimony. You know why? Because why would I serve anyone else? God has been faithful to me. And that leads right to the last. And they were faithful unto death. If God's been faithful to you, wouldn't you want to be faithful to Him? So He's called us. He's chosen us. And we need to be faithful. He's called us and you know He called you when the blood of the Lamb was applied to your life. You want to know for sure it was the call of God? Told you you better feel something. You better feel something in the words of a message. It's an anointed message of the Word of God. Even if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you should feel something. You can feel the Spirit without being filled with the Spirit. People felt it all through the Old Testament. You could feel the Spirit without being filled with it. I pray everybody that hasn't been filled with it feels it and feels it so powerfully they want to be filled with it. But it'll start with you feeling something. You'll feel the power of the Word of God. The Word of God has weight. You'll feel the unction of the anointing. The anointing of God is powerful. It breaks the yoke, saints. The yoke is broken because of the anointing. There's a power behind the Word of God and the anointing of the Spirit of God that will free you. And you'll know you've been freed. And then the blood of Jesus being applied to you, you're going to know God's called you out of this wicked world. You're going to know He's chosen you to be a part of His kingdom. Praise His holy name. Part of you knowing that is built upon, as I said, by your testimony growing. I know God called me. You know why? Not just because what I felt 10 years or 5 years or 30 years ago or 40 or 50, depending on how old you are. I felt it back then at the altar. I felt it back then when I was filled with the Holy Ghost. I've never stopped feeling it. I've never stopped feeling His presence. He's never left me. I've had so many experiences with Him since. The road is paved with signposts of His presence. I can look back behind me and see one memorial stone after another He laid down. One waypost after another. Places in my past life where the great and holy and mighty God of heaven met with me. Praise His holy name, saints. And it just keeps building one experience after another. I hope you're having one today in this service.
She can go home and say, what I felt in that service that Sunday was another layer of testimony for me. God was there, praise His holy name. God was speaking, praise His holy name. God was moving, praise His holy name. I felt His presence and I heard His voice. Praise His mighty name, saints. And it's another layer of strength in my armor that no enemy can get through. It's a shield of faith, saints. That shield of faith isn't made up of one layer of steel. It's layer upon layer upon layer, praise His holy name. Experience after experience. The most well-regarded swords that have ever been made on the earth are made by Japanese swordsmiths. And one of the secrets of those blades, which are so strong and yet so able to be sharpened to such a razor edge, I've got one of these knives myself. The kind of folding process they use, you have to soften metal some to get a sharper edge. To have strength, it's harder to get sharpness. But that folding technique they use, they'd fold them hundreds of times they'd fold that steel until it was so strong and so sharp. That's very much like your shield of faith. It's folded steel. It's not just one thin layer of steel between your heart and this world. That's how it starts. And that's why it has to be built up. Your shield of faith has to be built up by putting layers of one experience after another until it is so strong, so thick with experience. Nothing can get through that shield of faith. Your faith has been built up by the experiences you've had with the Lord. Your confidence has been built by your interactions with God. Not just one or two. That's why we've got to live a life that involves God in every aspect of it. So we are getting an experiential and interactive relationship with God built up. Be praying as often as you can. Studying your Bible as often as you can. Being in church as often as you can. Building up your relationship. Living a holy life, saints. It will build layer upon layer of defensive strength around you that the darts of the wicked will not be able to pierce through. We come to a point where our strength can stand, saints. Don't you want strength that'll stand? Not just flash in the pan faith, but strength that'll stand? Well, that's what he's looking for. He's looking for a people that are faithful. They start by being called. They start by that first initial set of experiences that they know God's talking to me and I'm going to respond. I'm going to respond. Don't ever be called and not respond. Don't ever ignore your spiritual phone. You hear it ringing, you better pick it up. Don't think it'll ring again. It might not. If you hear the spiritual phone ringing today, don't ignore the call. Pick up the call. Be chosen. Elected, that's what the word chosen means. You were called and now because you respond to the call, you're part of the elect group. And he'll start building those experiences I talked about in your life. And the experiences, the testimony of what he's done for you, but it's also the testimony of what you've done for him. Those things have to complement one another, saints. What he's done for us is most important. But if we do nothing in response, our testimony is not what it ought to be. And let's be faithful. They love not their lives unto the death, Revelation 12, 11 says. And you go back to Revelation 17, 14, and it says, faithful. You can't be any more faithful than to love not your life to the death. I'm faithful because of love, and I'm faithful in love.